You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. I invite you to take the Pew Bible found in your pew rack and open with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to find your spot. But before I read our passage, I do want to point out there's a reference in John 3 to Moses. And in case you're curious, I'm not going to address this in my sermon, but in case you're interested in knowing, there's a passage in the book of Numbers about Moses where he has a serpent, probably a sculpted serpent, on the top of a tall pole. And when he holds it up, the Israelites in the desert, if they get bitten by a snake, if they look up to that pole, then they'll be saved. They'll be healed. So that is referenced in our passage. Looking at John 3, verses 1 through 17. Listen to God's word for the church today. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you and I hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel 
and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At age 13, I attended a basketball camp one summer at the First Baptist Church in my hometown called Shooting for Heaven. At the mid-morning break, we circled up around center court. On that first day, I was not ready. The coach called on us to recite our favorite Bible verses. It was clear as the only Presbyterian in the room that I may be out of my depth. The ball was chest passed to me, and I had to think of something. And somewhere from deep down in my toes, I pulled out, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. (sighs) To my utter shock, I had a Bible verse on file, and I had hit the memory verse jackpot. The thanks really goes out to my Baptist grandma, Howell, for the car ride Bible verse recitations and the John 3.16 knickknacks around her house. The kindly basketball coach waxed on for minutes about how we have to believe to keep our souls from heading straight to you know where. You know girls were shooting for heaven after all. Got it? Great. Let's go shoot some hoops. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. You've likely seen it on billboards, t-shirts, coffee mugs. I have even seen it on tattoos. The verse describes a loving God, the created world God cherishes, and the self-giving Son. It is a powerful message. It is also the rallying cry for born-again Christians. How often have we heard the verse reduced to a pithy line or a palatable soundbite? Well-meaning Christians make it sound easy to understand, like an equation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. We forget that Jesus originally spoke these words to Nicodemus, a learned and erudite man who found these words utterly incomprehensible. The metaphorical language of birth, flesh, water, and spirit baffled him. How can these things be? he asked. I have a soft spot for Nicodemus, but to be honest, it's hard to know exactly what to make of him. On the one hand, he is seemingly sincere 
He's a learned Jewish leader, and yet he seeks out Jesus and greets him with words of generous recognition. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. On the other hand, we sense that Nicodemus' perception is limited. For Jesus is far more than a rabbi, a teacher. Nicodemus is drawn to Jesus because of the signs he is doing. And although Nicodemus is a public figure, he does not approach Jesus publicly, but perhaps clandestinely, by night, under the cover of darkness. With a closer look, we too are left like Nicodemus, with a lot of questions. Writer Debbie Thomas wonders if Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is representative of God's preferred evangelism style, then what does my more formulaic approach to Christianity leave out? Am I so invested in keeping the faith cozy and comfortable that I minimize its weirdness, its otherness, its offensiveness? Jesus had no problem leaving Nicodemus confused and wondering. A spirit blows where it chooses, Jesus said. We cannot predict or control or contain its comings and goings. We may even find it inconvenient to open the window and let the breeze in, particularly if we feel that things are tidied up, labeled, and sorted in our lives. The spirit can't be contained. The journey of faith and the workings of salvation can't be caged or contained either. When we speak of God's kingdom, we are in a realm of deep mystery. What Jesus is offering Nicodemus here is not a tune-up, but a brand new life. A shake-your-foundations kind of change. After all, what newborn enters the world without birth pangs, shock, disorientation, and pain? Downright bewilderment isn't the exception in a birth story. It's the rule. Nicodemus, by all accounts, a wise leader in the synagogue, sits baffled. We're forced to ask ourselves whether we too have understood this passage flatly. Does American Christian culture lean too hard on the importance of individual belief? How easy it is to forget the truth that God longs for all of creation, quite apart from our belief or unbelief. What does it mean to say, I believe, anyway? Growing up, my brother Jeff was the only one among Doris Howell's four grandkids that did not get a believer's baptism. Baptized at three years old when we joined the Presbyterian Church, my grandmother was worried that his baptism didn't count. Up until our young adult years, our grandmother would introduce us all by saying, these are my grandchildren, Elizabeth, Jamie, Brayden, and Jeffrey. He's Presbyterian, but he's a good boy. <laughs> our earnest, faithful Southern Baptist grandmother was well-meaning. There's no telling how many countless hours she spent on her knees in prayer for us all. She worried night and day. But what I wish she and so many other faithful followers like her knew 
was a sure confidence of John 3:17. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Indeed, God did not. Lest anyone be confused, the sentence starts with a negative. God did not send the Son to condemn. God sent the Son to save. That negative is important, as so many assume the primary disposition of God toward humanity is one of judgment and that God's character is inherently disapproving or condemning. Love is at the heart of John 3. Not judgment, not fear, but love. In her 2013 book, Christianity After Religion, former Edmonds lecturer Diana Butler Bass points out that the English word believe comes from the German word for love. That's not the usual way we jump to define it. To love. Not to hold an opinion, but to treasure. In asking Nicodemus to believe, Jesus is asking him to love, to revel in God's great love. To be born anew is to be changed into the one we have always been created to be. But God doesn't ask our opinion about it first. God doesn't even consult us. God loves us, and God goes ahead and sends the Son to a world that will despise him a world that will eventually send him to die. Lutheran pastor David Lose shares that he preached a sermon some years ago when he compared this passage, the sending of the Son in John 3, with the scandal of infant baptism. After all, he shares, we similarly bring children to the baptismal font before they can offer their consent and simply immerse them in God's love. How offensive, some might say, that we do not wait until they are of age and can decide for themselves. But that's the heart of infant baptism when you think about it. God adopts us, makes us God's own, and pledges to be both with us and for us forever. All this, whether we are ready, interested, or eager to receive it or not. For this reason, Lose explains, he proposed the church should add four words to the service of baptism to highlight the offensive, scandalous nature of the sacrament. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, like it or not. A week or two after he preached this sermon, a member of his church named Tom told him a story. Several nights earlier, Tom's six-year-old son, Benjamin, protested at his bedtime. Frustrated by his father's refusal to budge, Benjamin finally became so frustrated about bedtime that he said, Daddy, I hate you. Tom, possessing great presence of mind, replied, I'm sorry you feel that way, Ben, but I love you. To which Benjamin replied, Don't say that. Surprised, Tom, the dad, continued, Ben, but it's true. I love you. Don't say that, Daddy, but I love you, Ben. 
Stop saying that, Daddy. Stop saying that right now. And then it came. Benjamin, now listen to me. I love you. Like it or not. Even at six years old, Benjamin realized that in the face of unconditional love, he was powerless. If Tom had been willing to negotiate, I'll love you if you go to bed nicely, then Benjamin would have been a player. Okay, this time, but I'm not going to eat my vegetables at dinner tomorrow night. But once his father refused to negotiate, refused to make his love conditional on something that Benjamin did or didn't do, then Ben couldn't do anything but accept that love or flee from it. If God were to make God's love conditional, then we would have tremendous power. Then we could negotiate. We could threaten to reject God's love. We could even tell God to get lost. But when God just loves us, steadfastly and unconditionally, and sends God's Son for us, then there's nothing we can do about it. God, in Jesus, has made that decision. A decision that is for us, no matter what. If that's not good news, we need to hear right now. Then I don't know what is. It is clear in John 3 that there's nothing Nicodemus or any of us can do to secure the new birth of which Jesus speaks. Only divine initiative from above can affect it, an initiative that springs from the immense love God has for the world. That love, however, is not coercive. The gift of it can either be embraced or rejected. And therein lies the reality of judgment in John. God and Jesus do not judge. Self-judgment is in view here. To John's way of thinking, we judge ourselves by our response to God's love in Jesus Christ. Those who receive it receive new life. But those who reject it cut themselves off from eternal life, which is here and now, from the rich quality or fullness of life that comes from living, both in the present and beyond, in the unending presence of God. Nicodemus rather fades away from John 3. When we meet him again, we are left to wonder where he stands. We're left to wonder whether he embraced love and life anew, or whether it took him longer to recognize the fullness of life. Arriving in darkness, he is left to wander and wonder out into the light. Interestingly, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness, may well represent the secret believers or closet Christians in the synagogue. He says, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God. Both Nicodemus and Jesus seem to be speaking as representative figures here, reflecting a larger conversation important to believers in John's community. Those Christians, the ones John addresses, suffered expulsion from the synagogue for their confession of faith in Jesus. But not all 
Jewish believers confessed Jesus publicly. Some remained in the synagogue as closet believers or crypto-Christians for fear of losing their position. Nicodemus may well represent these secret believers, and perhaps Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is a challenge to come out and be honest about who he is. Nicodemus is being challenged to cross a social boundary, decide no longer in private, but openly with an oppressed group in his society. This scene has much to teach us. Nicodemus lives in the heart of every believer who is tempted to settle down into the secure wisdom of the establishment and resist the challenge of ongoing revelation. Wondering where Nicodemus would be found today, I think he must be found any place where Christians in power relate to powerless Christians. David Rensberger writes, Nicodemus is to be found wherever one whose life is secure must face those whose life is insecure or who struggle in the cause of God and decide to say, I am one of them. Jesus was calling Nicodemus to so much more than an altar call or a recitation of the sinner's prayer. Jesus was calling him to fall in love and stay in love. Jesus was calling him to come out of the darkness and risk the light. The work of Jesus was and is mind-bending, soul-altering work, important work, because love is important to God. Once we have been loved this fully, this completely, we are called to respond in love and to extend that love to all we encounter. Christianity in a nutshell, and the gospel in miniature. Sure sound catchy. But in the end, they don't do John 3 justice. No love as rich, demanding, costly, and free as God's love for us can ever be reduced to a formula. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.